Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Few people have been there for as many of dance music's foundational moments as Judy Weinstein. Her story starts right at the beginning, at David Mancuso's loft, which she'd eventually have a hand in managing. She worked with Mancuso on a seminal record pool before going on to form her own, called For the Record, which serviced New York's DJ circuit during its heyday. Weinstein is probably best known, though, for the company she keeps by way of Defmix, the label and management company she founded with her old record pool employee David Morales in the 80s. Defmix never had a big roster, but the artists she worked with, including Morales, Satoshi Tomie, and the late Frankie Knuckles, are legendary. When I visited Defmix's office in Manhattan on a recent Friday afternoon, I found her still hard at work on a number of projects, including Knuckles' posthumous Housemasters compilation, which saw release earlier this week through Defected. From her time as Larry LeVan's roommate to her first inadvertent trip to Ibiza, she brought a wealth of stories to this decade-spanning conversation. sort of involvement in dance music in DJ culture goes right back to the beginning really so I guess that's kind of the best place for us to start they call me Eve <laughs> the Eve of, of dance music the loft I mean you were going to that party from from very early on H- how did you end up there there were a group of guys from Chicago and I don't remember how we met but they took me to the loft for the very first time in 1971 and I, at that time, I was still living in Brooklyn. I had no idea what I was about to see and walk into that would change my life. And that's what the loft did. What did you see? I mean, what, what did you walk into there? Well, you didn't see much because the place was very dark, but the music was wonderful. And you, you actually got lost in music. That's what the loft was all about, getting lost in music. Because you weren't there to pick up anyone or to you know, drink yourself into a stupor. You were there to dance and listen to the music and the following morning run to the nearest record shop and buy what you had heard the night before. And that's what we all did. Before you had been to the loft, I mean, disco wasn't a genre yet. It, it, it wasn't a codified thing so much. But there were, there were numerous clubs in Manhattan that if you had the right amount of money and you were the right age and you were the right look, you can get into like regimes and I, I can't remember the name of the other clubs, but there were numerous discotheques, they were called. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of years later, it became disco. 
and then they killed this girl, <laughs> and so on and so on. But the music that, that you heard early on at the loft, I mean, had you ever heard music like that before? Well, yes, because growing up in Brooklyn and growing up with, you know, just a few um, radio stations that played popular music on the AM dial, they hadn't had FM yet, you heard really great music on WWRL, which is where Frankie Crocker started from. And so, no, I was very into dance music. And, you know, in those days, it was called soul music from the late 50s on. So going to the loft, it was almost like validation. I was at the right place. And you were hooked from very early on. I was on. hooked from the age of nine. So the loft was just, you know... I finally had a membership card. And the membership card had the Our Gang picture on the back of it. And that's what the loft was. It was Our Gang. Everyone knew each other. It was a wonderful place to be. And you became close with David Mancuso. Not at that time. A couple of years later, he needed someone to be his office manager. And someone told me about the opening, and I was out of work. So... I applied for the job, and he hired me, and I ran the. I was the manager of the loft for a few years. What was that like? Was it was it, it was organized? Where, it was wonderful. It was yeah. organized chaos. That's <laughs> what it was. But at the same time, I brought a, I brought a business atmosphere into it because you know I believed in keeping the books straight and keeping the records in a, a neat pile, and you know just doing all the things nice Jewish girls from Brooklyn were known to do. But that's where I actually met Larry LeVan and Frankie Knuckles. They walked into my little office and they both acted crazy and started throwing things around and making me laugh. And soon they became my two best friends. That's what the loft really gave me, Larry and Frankie. Was it clear early on that these guys were up to something, that that they were going places? They were already on their track. You know, they were already either playing at the Continental Baths or Larry was playing at a club called Soho, or or no, Reed Street. It was called Reed Street. So they were already on their way. But in those days, no one was remixing or producing yet. They were just playing the records that the record companies gave us. What was David like? Mancusa? Yeah. He was brilliant. He had such an ear for fine good dance music. He he treated his customers as family. You know, he could get mad at you too. <laughs> I, I I love David. He really he really made my life very rich. He started the first record pool in the country. Uh, it was called the New York Record Pool. And it was put together by a few DJs that used to drive record company promotion people crazy because they'd be coming up to the office, knocking on the door, give me some vinyl. Drive, you know, they couldn't get their work done. So what the New York Record Pool did was provide a, a place for all the records to be distributed to all of the DJs that qualified. And to qualify, you have to pay, you know, play at least two days a, a week. David had his rules, and, and most of the time they were followed. And then in 1975, I was still working for him. I had actually taken a sabbatical, moved to Florida, pretended I was finished with life in New York, and... I worked in a drugstore, putting away shampoo, and I just knew this wasn't for me. So I moved back to New York. I moved in with Larry, because he'd already started the garage, and then went back to work for David McHugh. So until 1978, when I started my own 
organization called For the Record. What was the motivation for you to strike out on your own, to do your own thing? I had worked for major corporations after high school and a year or so of college. That's a lie, a year, maybe a half a year. <laughs> but um, I don't know. To this day, I don't know where I got the the strength and the nerve to go into a business that was male-dominated. And I think it was because of Larry and Frankie and all the friends I had made at the New York record pool who were very willing to support me and join my organization that gave me the drive to do it. Yeah, it, it must have been, it must have been difficult at that time. I mean, there just, to this day, aren't so many women who were involved in dance music. It remains pretty male dominated. I would imagine at that time it was completely male dominated. Very few, very few women, very few girls, because I was only 25 at the time. I don't know. I never really studied why I was doing it. I just did it. I went around to the record companies with petitions. I had DJs sign, like they would join my organization. And within a year, I had 100 members of all the top guys in New York. And I had the support of all the record companies and all the dance promotion guys. A guy named Ray Caviano, who ended up with RFC Records. He was a great supporter. And then having the garages, the home base... I couldn't ask for a better home. I mean, do you think that was sort of the secret to the early success of the whole thing? I mean, having sort of the top music club, the Paradise Garage, as like the home of this record pool. It was having all the top music clubs. It wasn't just the Paradise Garage. It was every major club from Studio 54 to the Ice Palace to, you name it, all the gay clubs. I had all the top guys in all the top clubs. Why, I don't know. I didn't beg anyone. It, it just happened. Yeah, I was going to ask. I mean, what's, what's the sell? Me. <laughs> <laughs> because we loved... It was a love for music. We all, you know, we were in it for the music. Nobody was in it for the money because no one was being paid well in those days. It was about the music. It was about the brotherhood. Because at that time... Every Friday night, DJs would show up to pick up their records, and I would just sit back and listen to them all talk about the equipment, the song, the edit that Tom Moulton did. Or It became like a brotherhood with a few girls. Did you ever think about becoming a DJ yourself? I was terrible. <laughs> so you tried? I did. I gave a couple of house parties, rented some PA systems, and had one turntable and one cassette player, and I would push the pause button and put the same record on over and over and over again. I loved Somebody's Gotta Go Now by Mike and Bill. And I made everyone else love it, too. But then they started booing me for another record. <laughs> now, I was terrible. <laughs> what do you think it was then that made some of these other guys that you were involved with so good? I don't know. <laughs> some people have it. Some people don't. In those days, most of the guys had day jobs you know, working for the electric company or working for the telephone company or going to school. And then they would DJ at night, earn maybe $50, $75 for four hours of play. And as time went by and some of the DJs began to do edits and extended mixes, and then suddenly, wait a minute, we could become producers. And that's how, you know, Def Mix evolved from representing, you know, 
like David Morales was my record pool director, but he spent more time editing music and I had to fire him <laughs> and then become his manager. But then he was making more money than me. I said, let's start a company. <laughs> and to this day, we still have Def Mix. <laughs> that is a really funny story that I, I, I remember reading about it and I was hoping that, that you would flesh it out. I mean, you have to fire someone and then you decide to take them on it as was, your own it talent. It was the same day. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't take very long from, you know, for any of the, those things to happen. You know, David was working for me in 1985. And then in 87, it was um, two Puerto Ricans, a black man and a Dominican. And David did the edit on that. And then was, you know, he was captured. He was captured by the tape machines and the razor blades, and I knew I lost him as a pool director. So managing him, was it, it actually taught me a lot and became my next career. And then, you know, I always make fun of the fact that he was making more money than me. But that's, you know, I couldn't let that go on too long. <laughs> <laughs> For so many of us, we look to 1970s New York as being this sort of incredible time for, for music and this incredible time for, for clubs here. But you know, most of us, I mean, we weren't there. We were too young or, or not alive yet. Maybe you could paint us like a little bit of a picture. I mean, what, what was it like? What was the club scene like here in, in the mid seventies and the late seventies? To get my paintbrush out. <laughs> it was the time of my life. I don't know how to explain the mid seventies. I hardly remember them since I was working so much, but yet working at something I loved. I think it really depends on who the mayor was. I mean, Koch was pretty liberal and made things easy which is why a lot of clubs ex existed. It's when Giuliani came into the program. It was death to the clubs at that point. Yeah, I mean, it always seems like sort of city politics and nightlife are intertwined in New York City. Especially and, in New York. And um, it's interesting to hear that that's not something that began with Giuliani. It's always been that way. I'm trying to remember the 70s. It's so vague because I was so involved in the nightlife that sleeping during the day was, you know, that was a luxury. Well, you say, you know, that you don't remember much of the 70s because you, you were working so much. I mean, I think it's an important point that there wasn't an industry sort of prior to this. It was becoming an industry. Yeah. We actually, we, we made an industry. I remember at the at the loft during the New York record pool days, Neil Bogard, who was then the owner and the founder of Casablanca Records, came to the loft with Donna Summers, who performed for maybe, you know, 60 DJs that were just falling in love with her. And that was, it was executives like Neil Bogart and Ray Caviano and Mel Sharon who all worked for, you know, major labels or, you know, strong independents, who actually took this seriously. They saw the DJ, the DJs, they were more than DJs. They were, they were creating a, a business. And, you know, when you see business, you hang out, mm -hmm. you know, and find out how to parlay it into something that you can make a living out of. It is sort of a, a little bit of a leap in logic to go from something as a party to thinking, okay, we can really make something out of this. True. 
You know, it's funny when people talk about, you know, how long have you been doing this and where did you get started? You know, it's it's a story that to me is a story because I don't really believe that I was able to do this for over 30 years and, and make a living and, and have a good life. All from, you know, the four to the floor beat of of, of a song, mm-hmm. you know. So when we when we, when you ask me these questions about you know how was it, I really don't know, because it it happened. In addition to being involved in the scene really early in New York, you went to Ibiza quite early as well. Well, I went there by mistake once. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Long, who did the sound systems for most of the big clubs, including Studio Fifty Four, the Paradise Garage, was opening a sound system in Barcelona. It was another Studio 54 that was opening up, and the owner had asked if Richard could bring along a DJ and some music, so Richard actually asked me to do that. So this was my first trip in the 70s to Europe, and I knew that I had to go somewhere else. I couldn't just do Barcelona. I had to go, oh, my God, I have my first passport. (laughs) You know, girl from Brooklyn makes it big. (laughs) So I ended up twirling the phone book around and hitting the map on Ibiza. And I remember reading a story about some guy named Clifford Irving who wrote a book that proved to be not true. And, you know, he moved to Ibiza, and I said, I got to go. And I went, and um, that was the first time I went to Ibiza. And I left the next day because all it did was rain and nobody would speak English to me, so I ran away. But... Years later, I found myself in Ibiza for almost 12, 13 years. We had a residency at a club called Pasha. So that's my trip to Ibiza, which came later. <laughs> it was in the late 90s. So you didn't really, in, on that first trip, have any sense of what, what this was going to end up being None. there? I had no idea. But it's really funny because when I returned a decade later... I ended up in the same hotel I stayed at 10 years before. <laughs> That's very funny. So David Morales was the first guy that you managed? Yes. I'm just trying to think, because I also managed 100 other DJs that belonged to the record pool. But David was the first one that you know I learned how to be a manager with. Was that a common thing at that point for DJs, producers. No. no, and we were one of the first production companies to I was able to write royalties into their contracts, publishing things that DJs DJ remixers had never received before. But, you know, I take great pride in that because now it's common that, you know, a lot of DJs, especially the EDM guys who are making a good living, a very good living. Very good living, you know, are they are enjoying some of the things that I set into motion but they have no idea. What was the blueprint for being a DJ manager? I mean, did you... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of came up with this... I made it up as I went along. When you're used to playing mom to a bunch of guys, being a manager is no different, except you're going to take a percentage, if you're lucky, if there's anything left over. Because most of the time they spent every dime in the studio with the engineers, with the singers with lunch, with going to the movies. So usually, you know, you don't really make that much back in the day. But you were able to come up with a way 
to make more, to make it more of a viable thing for these guys. You know what? We just did what came naturally. You know, they made records for themselves and then they played them in their clubs. And then they got more gigs because they made the record that they played in their clubs. So there was a natural progression to it. How did you come to manage Frankie? Well, since we had known each other from the very beginning of The Loft, when he returned to New York in the late 80s, you know, we got together. What are you doing? What's up? He was playing at a club called The World. And I, I introduced him to David, and they became really good buddies. And then Frankie asked me to please take care of his business because he had already started remixing and producing in Chicago. Tell me about the sort of the beginning of Def Mix. This started in the early 80s, right? 87. So the mid-80s. The mid On its way to being over, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we incorporated in 1987. And David came up with the name because that was the era of everything being deaf, whether it was deaf jam or deaf potato chips, whatever. He came up with the name Deaf Mix. Then Frankie, you know, joined up, and then he brought in Satoshi. And then sooner or later was Bobby D'Ambrosio and Lord G. We had a few people stop on by every so often, but it was it was the three that really stuck because they were almost like a partnership. Yeah, it's always been a very tight crew. Oh yeah. You know, and at this point, maybe with the exception of Quentin Harris, I mean, it's people you've been involved with for, for decades. Oh, Satoshi's on his own now. I mean, he, he got to the point where he was always number three, no matter what. You know, I think a little bit of the frustration of always being number three got to him. So he broke out on his own, but he's still my son. We still see each other all the time. And I still have, you know, I'm still mom, and I still give him all the advice he needs, and he's doing fine. Mm -hmm. Another new thing, I guess, that came up during the 80s was remixing in the contemporary or the, the modern sense. I mean, this was something that all of these guys were doing. That was at the heart of, of Def Mix. Well, it was both. Although, you know, most of the... Um, Frankie was always considered a producer, remixer, DJ, or DJ, always DJ first, all of them. It's DJ first to them. David had to prove himself as a DJ in Europe, whereas he had been DJing in America or in New York at the Red Zone, at the Ozone Layer for over 15 years before that. So it was like breaking into an, a new field for him in Europe. That's sort of an interesting point, like in and of itself, sort of having to go to Europe to, to make it or having to go and prove yourself in You know, Europe. in America, the DJs, they were used to playing for anywhere from three to eight hours or longer. And in Europe, they only played for an hour or two. And the first time we went to England, David was playing, um, he actually, for Pitang. And after an hour, they said, thank you. You know, here's your $500. <laughs> and we're like, we just started, you know. And uh, no, you think. Thank you. An hour is enough. Yeah, playing a, a one-hour set or even a two-hour set. Where are you is, going? It's a completely different right. craft. From well, you don't what, get a chance to here. tell a story. And that's the difference between the European versus the American DJs at, at that time is that American DJs, you know, they, they sent messages out. 
subliminal messages to like a girl on the dance floor or even a boy on the dance floor. They would play a certain record because of how they're feeling, where the Europeans just played records. It was a big difference. I was looking on the, the Def Mix website and the discography section, there's something, mm-hmm. there are well over 300 entries and that just goes through 2003. I would imagine that there have been even more than that. I mean... Oh, yeah. There's always, you know, David alone, I think, might be at four or 500. Are, are you at all involved in the, the, the process of setting those up? Well, you see, now, this is where they all laugh at me, but back in the 80s, I was actually hired to remix a few, like, Jeffrey Osborne records. You yourself? A&M. Yes. You can see on the couple of Jeffrey's records, it says, mixed by Judy Weinstein. <laughs> But I wasn't very good at it. I was okay at it. The one thing that these guys have is they have a vision. They know the music so well. They know where pieces belong. They know how to extend it to where it makes sense. I, on the other hand, I'm good at telling you the vocal is too loud or it's too warm or it needs this, needs that. I'm very good at the end of the process. At the beginning, I'm terrible. I have no, I have no vision. So it, was it mostly the the guys choosing the tracks they wanted to, to remix? Were you vetting oh, offers? or? Well, no, usually, you know, Def Mix was known for quality. And we didn't take any projects that wouldn't turn out to be representative of what we do, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the philosophy was always that their work gets them more work. And that's what, it, that's what happened in the 90s. It was a huge influx of music coming in that was quality, especially from England. But I had, you know, in my early days of being a terrible remixer, I also met a lot of musicians, engineers, and worked in a few different studios from here and in California. So I I knew something about the process. And that was one of the things. The guys got good training because of the people that we hired to work with them. They They learned their skills. Listening to a lot of those remixes, I mean, they're lush, they're, oh, yes. they're slick in a way. I mean, this was some serious studio craft. Absolutely. And the guys, you know, they, they, they learned it. I wanted to go back and, and talk a little bit more about For the Record. There was something that I read that I found really striking, and I think it sort of speaks to the 80s in, in New York. This was a, a great time for music in a lot of ways, but it was quite a dark time for the city. I hated the 80s. Musically, I hated it too. What didn't you like about the music in the 80s? Well, I wasn't into punk. I wasn't into a lot of the music that was being sent out by the majors. They weren't for me. Personally, a lot of the guys did well, you know. But I was a Philly girl. I loved the whole Philly sound. I loved the Motown sound. I loved R&B music. And that was just that was disappearing in the eighties. Well, there was the the famous disco sucks thing exactly, in Chicago, you know, and that must have hit really hard. I, I mean, know, wor- you know what it hit? It, it hit our funny bones. That was the stupidest thing that that guy ever did. I mean, you know, did it really stop anything? You know, it didn't stop anything. I have this philosophy that you know, the children will always dance. And when children dance, they end up buying the songs they like to dance to. So when industry then, you know, goes on 
and people continue to dance and it's you know it just goes like that so that didn't bother me at all well and it, maybe it just sort of sent things back underground it always does but then it always comes up again yeah look it's you know 2015 and we're still talking about dance music it still must be around you know <laughs> did you like the direction that things started to take again in the 90s i hated house music too actually really <laughs> no i didn't but it took New York a while to get on board with house music. I think Bruce Forrest, who worked at Better Days, might have been like one of the first guys to actually play house music in New York. It was thin. It was empty. It kept telling you what to do. You know, move. <laughs> you know, it wasn't very... Um, the songs were not there. And I think that's one of the reasons I didn't like it, because I'm a song person. Mm. So are you talking about... Chicago stuff like tracks records and when they said well you know they were well Frankie Knuckles as well I mean you know but I think Marshall Jefferson changed it all that changed the way that house music was accepted I believe it was like the point of change did house music because I liked it <laughs> yeah well I was gonna say house music sort of must have come around you continued to yeah, have a I know. career I in can't it can't get away from it <laughs> I mean, you say that you, you know, you're a Philly girl. You had a, a preference for sort of this lush sound, Personally, all of that. Yeah. I mean, would you count what, what the Def Mix guys were doing? I mean, did that feel like house to you or did it feel like something else? No, I would, you know, the stuff that David and Frankie and Satoshi, they are so musical. And, and, and the music that they made, you know, proved that. You didn't hear, except David's Red Zone mixes. And that was his version of what house music was. Mm -hmm. And I liked it much better. Mm -hmm. Of course, because it was, you know, ours. Mm -hmm. But if you listen to any of the albums that the guys did, whether it was with Robert Owens, we had an album on Island with him, or David's album on Mercury, or Frankie's Virgin album, they were all songs. I mean, the proof is in the music. Mm. You mentioned, to go back to Ibiza again, that you guys ended up having kind of quite a long relationship oh, yeah. with the island. You were a big part of that. How did that come about? Well, the DJs were touring internationally. And Ibiza was one of the islands that was a summer of love and everybody's happy. And, the, you know, American DJs, especially my guys, were very popular overseas by then. And um, even though they had worked at other clubs, we landed a residency at Pasha. And... That went on for 10 years or more. And it was home to us. We, you know, we had homes on the island that we lived in on this, during the season. It was, it was a great time. You said, though, that in some interview or another, that <laughs> it was a great place, but it was an impossible place to get work done. Oh, forget it. You know, I, I was going to move there and you know, work in the morning and make my phone calls to the States and then take a swim. I did nothing but sit on the terrace and stare at the Mediterranean and the old town with a cup of coffee in my hand. It was a beautiful place to spend time, but not to get any work done. The island is big business, massive business now. Yeah. I mean, was it like that when you first no. went over? Now there's major highways and tunnels, and you think you were living in New York, actually, unless you get to the beach where it's suddenly a different story. And back then it was, you know, old roads, old homes, no construction going on. It was just 
It was a great place to visit. Did it have more of a, a DIY feel back then in terms of how the clubs were being run, how the parties were going? Well, there were only a few clubs that, you know, meant anything back then. And Pasha was one of them. And Danny Whittle, who was the guy that brought us over there, I mean, he really knew how to run a club and to, you know, divvy up the talent. He was very good at that. So he made it more of an experience that was exciting, but also like home. It became home. Mm -hmm. How long was it that you were going over there for every summer? I mean, now you At least 10 years. And do you still go? I went last year when I was awarded the Pioneer Greatest Contribution to Dance Music Award. That was wonderful. I also got to meet Idris Elba, who's, you know, very nice guy to meet on the island. <laughs> but now it's, you know, it's not home anymore. It's, it's business. Yeah. Do you think that's a, a good thing or a bad thing? For me, it's, an, it's a no thing. I'd like to find another place to make home but you know my my life is different now anyway I'm not going out to clubs every weekend mm. I gave my contribution <laughs> <laughs> got, the, got the achievement yeah, award got the achievement right? award for it well back at the winter music conference days we won the best record pool award I think it was seven or eight years in a row they finally stopped giving the award because everyone was so pissed about it so we were well represented at, at ADE a couple of years ago it's been fun you want to put that at the end of all this. It's been a great time. <laughs> <laughs> the whole record pool concept sort of now with with the internet, I would imagine it, it changes the purpose or maybe there is no purpose. I mean, is there still something, is there still a place for something like the record pool? I don't know. I closed for the record after 30 years. And I closed it because... The DJ was now downloading everything he wanted from TrackSource or from Beatport. The new generation of disc jockeys, they really don't know how to communicate with each other. They don't have the skills to, you know, to, to meet and talk about music and what kind of equipment are you using. and They don't care. So know. much of that's now happening online. But it's, a lo- it's much yeah, less Yeah, but you're personal. not talking to anyone. I mean, the, the beauty of For the Record was on that Friday night. You know, there's 10 or 15 guys sitting around going through their records, opening up the shrink wrap and, you know, talking about what headphone, who made this, where's it going? Did you play that last night? There's none of that going on now. When you did decide to to shut down for the record, I mean, had you noticed that something was dwindling? Yeah, the amount of DJs that were interested in belonging to a, a record pool. They didn't exist, very few. Only the guys who had been around for years would come up to get records. But some of the music we were getting, they weren't playing anyway. It was a big, we were receiving a lot of hip hop, a lot of music that the majors were putting out, which the DJs weren't playing. So if I had changed everything and became a beat poet, which I certainly could have tried to do, it still would have taken out the love of music because it becomes a business, doesn't it? Mm. And the record pool was never a business. It's never how I made a living, but it's how I lived. It seems like it would have been a whole sort of confluence of things. That, you know, there are different places for DJs to get music. The music itself is is changing. 
maybe even the city is changing too. The the, the club scene, the the DJ scene. Is there a club scene here? I didn't know. Very few clubs now. I'd rather go to a small pub and listen to some good music on the jukebox. And it can be new music. I, I still love music. In fact, I fell in love with country music last year because there were some lyrics. There was a story. There was a broken heart. There was a truck. <laughs> but at least country music, and I started going to a lot of venues because I realized I hadn't been going to concerts. So I did what I called my arena tour. And I saw about seven or eight shows in major arenas in the New York area. And they were all country, but they were all jammed. 60,000 people, 80,000 people, all there, you know. And I know that goes on. Somebody like Cascade sells out to Barclays Center in, you know, 15 minutes. That's, I find that's amazing. And I'm sorry I'm not a part of that world, but I'm... I'm not, and I can't pretend to suddenly be an EDM fan because I'm not, you know, because the EDM, the whole EDM movement is great because it establishes dance music as a viable industry. Everybody's buying, you know, Live Nation. Everybody's a part of it now. But there's no heart to it. There's no soul to it. It's a business. Well, this happened before in the 90s. Well, I lived it already. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you see parallels between what was happening then maybe with the quote-unquote only that it's gonna you know it's it will settle down and find itself in a different place it won't be you know it won't be the money maker that it was but there'll be something else it will develop into something else that is danceable because that's what dance music always does the guys that are still involved with deaf mix are veterans what is their place in the contemporary dance music scene? Well, we had a godfather, right? Yeah. And now you have the Kings of House, where you have a Louis Vega and a David Morales and Tony Humphreys touring. There is obviously an audience that wants that kind of quality music and style because they are, they are performing. They're not just standing up there and waving their arms around. I mean, they have skills. And, you know, a lot of the DJs now from, you know, the the newbies, they don't have the skills because they never had to learn it, you know, from scratching turntables and records and putting nickels on tone arms and cutting up tape. They don't know that. So, you know, but I still believe that there'll be a new technology every year, every day, you know, something else for them to learn. So DJs like, like David and They'll go on until they can't go on. I mean, look at Frankie. He was almost 60 years old. And he was still playing. Mm. It's been, I guess, almost a year now since we lost Frankie. What do you see as his legacy? I mean, the short answer people would give me. is, <laughs> you're the legacy. You know, me. Mm-hmm. Anyone that's ever been in his company is his legacy. Frankie was one of the warmest, gentlest, sweetheart person he was more than a dj he was more than a producer he was a human being and i was fortunate enough to know him when he was a kid his legacy is that he will be remembered and we'll make sure of it i mean his legacy is much bigger than than just house music it would seem which is kind of a crazy thing to say because house music is a massive legacy when they showed his picture at the grammys you know they do that 
list of people that had passed away and they show a picture and a little blurb as it goes by. And there was Frankie. What an honor. You know, we used to sit and watch like stars and directors and people like that. And there was one of our own that was being honored like that. That, that was very special. He was honored well outside of just dance yeah. music circles. Were you surprised by that? You know, you work alongside of someone, you play with someone, you hang out with someone, you eat chicken and macaroni and cheese too much with someone. You don't see him in that light. You see him as your friend. He sent out that kind of a vibe that he was just a regular guy. And he was. With the way that the industry is, with the way that music is now, I mean, do you think there could be somebody coming up like Frankie today? Do you think there's still room for a character like that? There's only one Frankie, you know? There'll always be other stars, you know, other, other great men, great women. The reason why Frankie is, you know, stands on his own is because he was unique. And that's what makes somebody live forever. It's, it's their uniqueness. It's not what you leave behind, it's how you live. Mm. I don't know, there was like a Captain Kirk or somebody said that. <laughs> we kind of touched on this just a little bit before, but I wanted to ask you about, a, a bit more specifically about kind of the contemporary dance music scene. You mean now? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? Is it, I'm glad it's so vibrant and so alive and you know and I'm still a part of it. I still dance around in my house when nobody's looking. I still go to like CLO when one of the boys play because there's an area for me to sit down. I still love music. I still feel it inside when I you know I could still t there was a record that was out recently that became a huge hit and everybody made fun of me for liking it. It's that girl with the long blonde hair. A Taylor Swift. No, she's great anyway. <laughs> It's all about the bass, not okay. the treble. <laughs> I picked that song before it was even out. And I was so proud of myself because I could still recognize a hit, you know. But look at Taylor Swift. I mean, she's great. She's talented. Smart. Girls like her, she will last forever. When I saw Lady Gaga last night on, on Channel 13 public television singing with Tony Bennett, and this girl can sing. Who knew? She really can sing. Is that sort of a, a problem? Maybe this is a sort of a recurring issue that there's some lack of talent, like people with musical talent, people who can sing. Always, though. That's always been the case. It's Do you all think about who you have in your, in your camp, who's your manager, who's your record label, who's your boyfriend. You know, that, that will always be entertainment. Mm-hmm. Do the guys have any new projects coming up? Ah, promotion. <laughs> well, for, of course, as you, you might know, Defected is releasing the Frankie Knuckles Housemasters box set, which represents a lot of Frankie's career. It's a really nice package. One of the things that I'm most proud of is right after he passed away, I remembered that Elton John had a foundation charity for AIDS and I knew that Frankie would you know because he had mixed a, a record or two for Elton 
and I knew that Frankie would definitely approve of a connection between his passing and helping other people survive, especially black men in Africa and America, and that's what this charity goes to, Preventing AIDS. So they're affiliated with the project. They're receiving some funds, you know, profits. What else? David has some music out right now, this song, Lovin', featuring Kim Mizell, which has been doing very well. And Hector's getting ready to release some remixes because in this world, you can't get a job unless you remix somebody or something. <laughs> be nice if they could remix somebody because <laughs> some of these songs are such crap. But my guys make them better, you know? I feel like there's a lot of my life that I don't remember. And it's not because I took drugs and all that because I just smoked a joint here and there. I was never a big druggie. But... It went by so fast, and that's what you learn when suddenly you hit 60. What happened? You know, and when I tell you that after I stopped the record pool after 30 years, 30 years went like that, you know? My life has been pretty good. I can't complain. Do you think you have another couple of decades or however long I don't know left? about decades, but, you know, <laughs> another couple of years for sure. You know, it's funny, you know, you, when you grow up in Brooklyn and you think you're going to marry a doctor and, you know, have children, and then you step out and you buy a little Anthony and the Imperials record called, uh, I forgot what, but a seven-inch for like five cents or whatever. Or, you know, you turn on the radio and suddenly you're sending away for a good guy sweatshirt and you win a prize and... Then you suddenly buy that record, and then you go to another Titus Oaks, the store in Brooklyn, and buy three forty-fives for a dollar ninety-nine. And you're doing all these things that, just because you love it, you know. I loved the music. I loved the nightlife. Call me Alicia. <laughs> I love. <laughs> I love Donna Summers. I love Teddy Pendergrass. You know, how lucky. What a good life I've had to be able to meet some of these people. I got to sit in the studio with some of these people. You know, how wonderful. If a young person who was just starting out came to you and said, I think I want to become a manager. I think I want to get involved in this. Don't be a manager. No. Because you'll always be in the wrong. It's always the manager's fault. It's never the artist, right? This is something you learn. I was just lucky I could slap the guys around and take their mind off of me being the problem. <laughs> it seems like that's that's part of the job is is being okay with being the person who's wrong, being professionally. The they were my who's manager, wrong. David and Frankie and Satoshi were my manager. You know, because when something was like wrong, I would say to them, "What what should we do?" And they would help me make a decision about what we should do. So yeah, they were, they were my managers. 